Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon. On the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Mormonism's Orthodox Religion. On the evening of Tuesday, April 26th, 2022, John DeLynn and the Mormon Stories crew were kind enough to host me at a venue located in American Fork during my recent trip down to Utah. The event was billed by Mormon Stories as an evening with RFM, but I decided not to title this podcast an evening with RFM because there's actually something very specific that I end up talking about with a number of detours along the way. And that something has to do with the progressive orthodoxy of Mormonism. And by that I mean it began as a radical religious sect and over the last 200 years has become an established worldwide religion with its own unique theology, but also its own unique orthodoxy. But at what cost? That's the main overarching theme of this address. This event was live-streamed by Mormon Stories, but John DeLynn has been kind enough to send me the audio, and I have spent a number of hours, four, possibly five or six hours, editing the audio in order to make it more streamlined, more compact, and easier to listen to. I've also inserted a few comments along the way to describe what's going on, because if you can't see it, you may not be able to understand some of the things that are happening. So that is about all I have to say by way of introduction. I want to thank once again John DeLynn and the Mormon Stories group for hosting me at this event. It was very, very kind of them to do so. I also want to thank all my listeners who were able to attend. There were around 200 people packed into this room, and I'm so grateful for each and every one of you who could attend live, for those of you who attended by live stream, and for those of you who wanted to be there, but for one reason or another, could not make it. With those comments out of the way, let's go to the tape of An Evening with RFM, which I have now retitled Mormonism's Orthodox Religion. Okay, everyone. Hi, welcome. The real reason that we're all here tonight is to hear from and meet and honor and celebrate, although he doesn't like that term, a man who has meant a lot to a lot of us. He's kind of wrestled from from all of us the title of uh, most popular podcaster, most handsome podcaster, most intelligent podcaster, most funny podcaster, and most popular and beloved podcaster. And I'm happy to hand over all those awards to RFM. <laughs> RFM, come on, come on over. It's RFM. At this point, I walk to the microphone in front of the room and see that it is set impossibly high because John DeLynn was using it. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and most practical joker podcast. There we go. Thank you very much. No, I'm standing, actually. This is standing. This is sitting. I'm standing. That's something about John Dillon. He thinks everybody's sitting. I apologize for being a little bit late tonight. I had told John earlier, uh, I thought I was speaking with my tongue in cheek, but I said, if I'm not there at seven, start without me. And I guess he did, so... But I'm glad everybody is here. Thank you so much for coming. Did everybody actually mean to be here? And I'm I'm standing up here now. I've got... At this point, I realize I still have gum in my mouth. And I leave the microphone for a minute to find a place to get rid of it. Okay. So, lesson for the night. If you're going to stick your gum under a table, it shouldn't be a glass tabletop. All right. 
because that's going to be found a lot quicker. Anyway, it's so great to be here. I have had so much fun since I got here on Friday morning. Oh my gosh, talk about a whirlwind tour. I would think that everybody here would be pretty sick and tired of Radio Free Mormon by now. Well, I will try and keep this brief tonight. And you know, that's never going to happen. One thing that happens with lawyers is the judge is always asking them when they're going to have a trial or they're going to have a hearing or something because the judge is interested in scheduling things because they have other hearings or trials they have to do. What always happens is that lawyers always grossly underestimate the amount of time that they're going to be talking. Can you imagine? Always. And so that's what I think of because I'm a lawyer. And when I say I'll, I'll be brief tonight, you understand that that doesn't mean the same thing to you as it might to me. So anyway, Sandra. At this point, I look down to my right and I suddenly recognize that Sandra Tanner is sitting there in the front row and I go over to her and I take her by the hands and have her stand up in front of the audience and give her a big hug. And now if you listen closely, Sandra tells the audience that I spent Saturday afternoon at her house and then she thinks about it and says, that doesn't sound right. It sounds pretty good to me. So let me think here. What am I going to say? Oh, what I'm going to say is this, is that I am so, so humbled to be here. And I know it sounds like I'm up here bearing testimony, right? But I really, really am. And frankly, part of me getting here accidentally a little bit late, uh, 1700, sweet 1700 is not the most obvious place when you're on the other side, looking at the, the ice cream and the donuts. I was kind of hoping it might be the ice cream and the donuts, but it wasn't. It was over here. And then I found out that all of you wonderful people managed to make it very difficult for me to find a place to park. <laughs> so I'm across the street and up the road, and hopefully... I'm in a parking zone, but we'll find out when I get out of here. Um, there has been a slight emergency of sorts. It's not life-threatening, at least not yet, which is going to require me to leave by nine o'clock. So I hope that'll be plenty of time for us. And what I want to do tonight is I want to talk to you, tell you a few things that I had prepared yesterday morning and written down, and then maybe have Questions and answers, John, this has been very well organized. I think John has organized it very well. It's just that he hasn't let me know what's going to happen. So then we're going to have question and answer, and then maybe just talking and greeting. But I, I'm sorry, because I have to leave by, by 9 o'clock. So that'll give us plenty of time. Now, the most funny thing, or the funniest thing, happened to me yesterday morning when I'm at the, the hotel, and I'm alone. And as many of you may know, I should tell you, this is my third presentation in two days. So yesterday, I was on John DeLynn's show. He was very kind to have me on. We finally did part two of a part one eight months later, and that only went for over four hours. And that made me late to another event. But that was my fault because I wouldn't shut up. And you can't see John because he's over there. He flicks the screen right. So he gets to choose when he's showing on the screen and when I'm showing on the screen. And for some reason, he always puts me on when I'm picking my nose or something. But he's over there and he's going and I'm going because I wanted I had a few things that I wanted to say about John DeLynn. And if any, did anybody see that, by the way? Thank you. So that was that. And then this morning I had another presentation, but fortunately there was a uh, Randy Bell. You talked about that, right? So I got to sort of be a wingman on that, but I had prepared for that with Randy. And then we did that this morning. That was like three hours. And then tonight I have this wonderful opportunity to talk to you in what hopefully will be a more informal kind of setting for which I dressed formally. Yeah. Sorry. 
I want to do this just to show you that, yes, I can look marginally decent. I don't always have to be wearing Marvel Comics t-shirts wherever I go. But yesterday morning when I started writing, I knew exactly what I was going to talk about today because I've had this idea in my head for a number of months. And as a lot of you know, I'm trying to back off. I am actually doing it. I'm like, Yoda, I'm doing it. I'm not just trying anymore, backing off the law of practice in order to devote more time to podcasting because I have not been able to do everything that I wanted to do and say everything I wanted to say. And I know you're saying, you got to be kidding me. Really? There's more? But there is. And there are things that I have held on to for months and months and even years now. By the way, hi, everybody. Do, you, do we know how many are streaming, John? Oh, okay. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. There you go. Thank you. So I forgot what I was going to say there, but this made me remember that I'm very humbled to be here. See, I got halfway through one thought and then half. Thank you so much. Can I tell you, I'm very humbled and this is very sincere. When you see me acting cocky or arrogant sounding, that is what I have learned to do throughout my life to cover up my insecurities. Do I need to back up a little bit? I'm getting a little feedback. Okay. So anyway, I remember talking with this attorney friend of mine who I had the good fortune to co-counsel. He's a big name attorney from Seattle. He does really big name cases. And his name is John Henry Brown. And I hope story about him here. We became very good friends through the course of representing this individual who was charged with murder. And I remember talking to him on the phone sometime after the trial was over. And he said to me, Radio Free Mormon, that is always the closest I come to saying my name publicly. Uh, he says to me, Radio Free Mormon, he says, you know, what do you think of me? And I said, I think that you are a deeply insecure individual who covers it up with a show of bravado. Because we had this relationship where I could say this. It was kind of risky anyway. There's a pause on his end of the phone. And he goes, how did you know? And I said, because that's how I am too. So I can recognize it in another. Anyway, so very humbled to be here because I have really, really studied a lot in the church, regardless of the moniker that's been assigned to me of being a lazy learner. I really have tried my best to study in the church. And it came to my attention back in 1978 when I joined the church and got baptized that it was a really big thing in the church to learn and to know about the scriptures, to know about church history. We were encouraged to study. And the word that we were encouraged to be was a scriptorian. Now, I don't hear that word that much anymore in the church today. Maybe I'm missing it. I try and pay attention to general conference and other things, right? Am I missing it? Does anybody remember back 40 years ago when we were encouraged by leaders of the church to be scriptorians? And at the time, we actually had scriptorians in the church. Now, they may have been interpreting things through a very Mormon lens, but yes, they knew their scriptures. And when I got baptized, Bruce R. McConkie was an apostle, and he was a very well-respected apostle and a very prolific apostle. And he wrote the same book about a dozen times and gave it different titles. And you only know that if, like me, you actually read them. But he sort of reorganized things and shuffled it around to try and make it so I wouldn't notice, but I did anyway. Honestly, I miss Joseph Fielding Smith. And by missed, I mean I wasn't a member while he was alive even. But I did discover him in his books. And I read Joseph Fielding Smith, who was, of course, Bruce R. McConkie's father-in-law. And when I started reading Joseph Fielding Smith, I began realizing that Bruce R. McConkie's son-in-law, I'm not sure he ever actually had an original idea. And I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead. But it was like everything that he said is something that his father-in-law had said before him. And you know... I've got to admit, then I started reading Joseph F. Smith, who was Joseph Fielding Smith's dad. 
And I'm not sure that Bruce McConkie was the only one who never had an original idea in his head. Because this all goes back to a time period which is early in the 20th century. And by the way, I forgot to make the point I was going toward. This is a problem when I'm up here without a script. I'm very humbled to be here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason why is because scriptorian. And the church told me that I needed to be a scriptorian, and I actually took it seriously. I really did. And I started reading the scriptures. Well, I started reading books about the scriptures first, because the scriptures were like Shakespeare for me. I need to know what they say before I read them, so I can understand what they're saying. But when you're in the LDS church, or probably any other religion too, if you read what somebody else says the scriptures say, then it's already imposing a certain interpretation on those scriptures, and that's what I'm going to read from them and understand them. But the, the first book I read was a wonderful book that I'm not even sure they sell anymore. It's called A Marvelous Work and a Wonder. They don't. Okay. And Sandra would know. I, that was such a great book for me as an introduction to Mormonism beyond the missionary discussions because it explains step by, these were actually an original form of missionary discussions in the Southern States mission when LeGrand Richards was the president is my understanding. But it got put in a book and it explained all these different scriptures and how they meant Mormonism is true right? Scriptures from the New Testament, scriptures from the Old Testament. And so this was very, very helpful to me as I read. But then it, it introduced me into the scriptures, and I started reading that along with Cleon Skousen. And, you know, I didn't know anything about Cleon Skousen's political writings or anything at first. I mean, I'm way up in western Washington. I'm not in the heart of Utah at all. So I don't know anything about these people except their names that appear on books. And I read his Thousand Year series, the first 2,000 years, and then the third thousand years, and then the fourth thousand years. The first book covers 2,000 years because there's really not that much to talk about. So that gets its own book, and it's even actually shorter than any of the other books. But this really helped me to understand the Old Testament. So anyway, all I'm trying to say is I studied, and I studied, and I studied, and I spent 40 years studying to become the scriptorian I was told that I should be by leaders of the church, only to find out at the end that they didn't really mean it. And that was extremely disappointing. And it's a gradual realization that comes upon me. And one of the things that happened was that I found that as I studied, I began to learn things about the church, which I found exciting and interesting, but that nobody else wanted to hear. And so when I would be asked to teach a priesthood lesson, and I didn't want to go with the manual because we've heard that a hundred times before. I mean, I don't want to fall asleep while I'm actually teaching a class because I'm standing up and that could be dangerous for me. So I'm trying to introduce interesting ideas, not controversial necessarily, but interesting ideas. And I could not tell you the number of times when after a class, I would have someone like the elders quorum president come to me for a special meeting a little informal meeting and saying, Radio Free Mormon, you need to follow the manual. Okay, got it. What I did was I ended up making marginalizing myself within a system of the LDS church. And I came to realize one of the best lines, who, who here has seen The Night Stalker with Darren McGavin? Okay, I hope so. Uh, it's a wonderful movie and it holds up well over time. It was 1972. I actually watched it on ABC Movie of the Week when I was 12. It's about the vampire in Las Vegas and the reporter named Carl Kolchak who's tracking him down and trying to find out the truth while the city and even his editor are trying to suppress the story because they're scared it will cause a massive panic. It holds up well, but there's this one point in the middle, this has nothing to do with the plot, where Darren McGavin, the character Carl Kolchak says, I've become extinct in my own lifetime. I didn't understand at all what he was talking about when I was 12, but through my experience in the church, I know exactly what he's talking about. 
because I had the same experience. I became extinct in my own lifetime. And I made myself extinct by doing what the leaders told me I should do. So it was very confusing to me. And this is the long way around to get to the idea that it's very humbling and almost tearfully so to me to have been a member of a church who has been marginalized and shut down and told to not talk about things and then to finally find that there is an audience who's actually interested in hearing what I have to say. So I want to thank you so much for that. Thank you for being here. So I will get to my outline here in a second. It's not very long, but like John DeLynn found out yesterday, I went on for about two hours on this much outline on the top of a page. That was really, really funny, wasn't it, John? Oh yeah, it was funny. So what I want to talk about, to, oh, this is, oh, this story. I've got like three lines out there right now that I haven't gotten to the end of any of them. But what happened yesterday morning when I sat down to write out my notes, I knew what I was going to write about because I've had this idea going on for years. You remember like half an hour ago, I mentioned that. And I had this very strange experience, which is I know what I'm going to write down and I just need to write the notes down. So I have something to hold on to. Every Dumbo needs his feather. And what I find myself doing is writing down a completely different outline from what I was planning on writing down. And that's very strange. It's like my hand is not my own. And it's writing something very different. Now, what's different is a different idea that I did have. And I thought, you know, if I were still active, if I were still believing, this would be a total Holy Ghost moment, wouldn't it? And I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it's the Holy Ghost. Maybe it's ADHD. I'm not positive anymore. All I know is that it happened. And so what you're getting is not what I intended to give you. All right. So if you don't like it, then you can know that what I had intended to give you was so much better. Okay. So really this is about, this is about it. And I think I've, I have, I've gotten this far in the outline. All right. So I'm sorry. What? <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Well, I want to talk about the Temple Endowment just briefly. This is the intro. The Temple Endowment changed in 1990 because I was baptized in 1978 and went on my mission in 1979. I had the good fortune of going through and receiving my endowment in the Provo Temple after I had signed in to the MTC, which is not normal, but there's very little about me that is normal or my journey that is normal. Most guys I find out actually get their endowments before they go into the MTC. But I'm the only member of the church in my family. So I don't really have someone shepherding me along or taking me to the temple or saying we need to go to the Idaho Falls Temple, which was the closest temple to Seattle at the time. That's where my best friend, Bruce, the guy who baptized me, that's where he went to get his endowment before he went to the MTC. And he went to the MTC three weeks before I did. This is a great story about me and Bruce where we were in high school together. We're in the same class. We've been good friends for a number of years. And we both took German together. I don't know what they're doing in high school now, but back then you had to have a foreign language and you had to have at least two years of a foreign language to graduate. And what happened was that he and I started in ninth grade when I moved to Sumner, Washington, against my will. But he and I were the only two individuals who actually went through all four years of German. 
So by the time we're seniors, we're both four-year German students, and the other seniors, they didn't start in ninth grade, so they might be second or third year German students. The reason I tell you this is not because I had developed a great proficiency in German. I basically understood German, but you know, after a while studying German, all those words start looking alike to me. But anyway, so we both take four years of German. I end up joining the church because of Bruce and because of his example, and we put in our mission papers at about the same time, back in early 1979. And I get called to Japan, and he gets called to Austria. And for those of you who may not know, Austrian is very similar to German. So when he's at the MTC for two months, he is basically able to goof around while I'm slaving trying to learn a language that I've never heard before or never learned before, and that is actually a very difficult language for English speakers to learn. And it's mainly because it's all syntactically different than English. Okay, so I've said that much. What I want to talk about, though, is the endowment. And the endowment that I went through, oh my gosh, I'm really not drunk. <laughs> I might be acting a little bit tipsy, but I'm not drunk at all. I have had no alcohol today. So there was a character. Oh, I've got to ask for hands. Who here went through the temple to receive an endowment for themselves or somebody else prior to 1990. Wow, that's a lot of people. Great. So you may know that there were some changes that were made in the temple endowment in 1990. And one of those temple changes, excuse me, one of those changes to the endowment was kind of significant. There were a number of significant changes. Removing the five points of fellowship at the veil. By the way, I'm, all, I was, I'm always confused. If I take an oath or a vow or a blood covenant to not reveal something that's in the endowment, and then they take it out of the endowment. <laughs> I mean, am I still bound by that? And I ask you because there's nobody else I can ask. Or I can ask them, but they're not going to answer. And in addition to that, there was also an entire character in the endowment that was removed in its entirety. And that's pretty significant. And who am I talking about, by the way? I heard some whispers. Yes, uh, the Protestant, the preacher, the Protestant minister character. He doesn't have a name, right? But uh, he's the Protestant minister. And he comes along as a, he, he's a dupe and a hireling of Lucifer because Lucifer basically tells him what to preach and he preaches it and he does it for money because you understand that that's one of the signs of apostate Christianity is when the ministers are paid. It's a stipend, it's not a salary, which always reminds me of the famous joke that Abraham Lincoln would tell, how many legs does a dog have if you call its tail a leg? And the answer is four, calling its tail a leg doesn't make it one. So that's what I think of about the stipend salary, right? Potato, potato, let's call the whole thing off. But getting back to this character, I'm going to come back around to this character, all right? Because there's something very significant that this character said as part of his script. I'm talking about the Protestant minister that was removed as well with the character. And I'm going to come back to that. That's called the tease, okay? So what ends up happening then is if we go back to the beginnings of Mormonism, the thing that made Mormonism so interesting to so many people in the beginning was that it was radical, it seemed to be open-ended. It had a lot of what we would call now speculative theology. And different leaders and different members were allowed to kind of have, I mean, within a certain ambit, their own ideas about things and preach things and interpret scriptures in certain ways. And Joseph Smith, for all of his failings, did talk about the fact that Mormonism encompasses all truth. And if you as a member of my church 
This is Joseph Smith speaking. If you, as a member of the church, do not accept all truth, regardless of what source it may come from, you will not come out a true Mormon in the end. So this is a structure and a framework that's very expansive. And of course, Joseph Smith dies, but the leaders of the church continue to have very speculative theologies, which incorporate a number of things. Adam God, not super popular, but it was part of it. And I think that Brigham Young, as I read Brigham Young, once again, for all of his faults, I think that Brigham Young saw himself as a true prophetic successor to Joseph Smith. Just as Joseph Smith had done all this incredible theological innovations, that Brigham Young felt that he could do the same thing as well. And I think he tried. And I think he found out that the members of the church really weren't ready to accept that from him, by and large. So he kind of got pushed to the side as far as his innovations. But at the time, there's Orson Pratt, right? And we are having public discussions and even debates between leaders of the church about different theological principles. Now, this is an amazing thing, because if you compare that to now, you might notice a slight difference. And I think that back then, it was probably much more exciting to be a member of the church. And this continues even into the 20th century. I'm following a broad framework for maybe 30,000 feet. But what happens at the beginning of the 20th century is that Joseph Smith has managed to throw out so many sparks of ideas in different directions. And it seems that Joseph Smith, kind of like a lot of charismatic religious innovators, wasn't really concerned about harmonizing them or systematizing them. He throws them out here and there. It's like he has this inexhaustible source of ideas. Wherever it's coming from, I'm not saying. But he'll throw it out here, there, and he's always coming up with new things for his listeners to hear. That's another thing that he said. It is my province to dig up new things for my listeners to hear. And he did that. And so after he passes away, we have all the speculative theology. By the way, I have to say this about Joseph Smith. Not all of his ideas agreed with each other. And over time, he would say things that actually contradicted one obvious example is about what happens to children in the resurrection, those who die as little children. Well, what is the answer to that, by the way? Does anybody know? Whew, it's warm. Well, what the typical standard response should be, if you're paying attention in Sunday school, is that that child will be resurrected as a child and then allowed to grow to maturity in the resurrection so that the mother who suffered the loss of that child in mortality will have the blessing. I have, my emotions are so close to the surface. I'm so sorry. They have been for like a couple months. But we'll have the blessing of raising that child to maturity. That's what the church decided it was going to focus on. And that is why when people find out that in the original notations of the four scribes who took down to the best of their ability what Joseph Smith said in 1844 in the King Follett Discourse, it becomes a real surprise to them to find out that Joseph Smith said something very different there. And what he said was, of course, that they're resurrected as infants and they stay infants forever. They never grow up physically. And that's why he said that the universe or the galaxy, he didn't say galaxy, the universe is filled with infants on thrones who are, gov they, they act as gods. They're on thrones. They're gods. And um, it's kind of like that Star Trek episode. Remember with that little, it wasn't Ronnie Howard. It was his brother, Clint, Clint Howard. Remember that? Anyway, Tranya. That was the drink that, there's some people laughing that they get it. There's like five of you. Thank you very much for being here tonight. But yeah, they're just these little dinky kids, but they've got the scepter, they got the throne, and that's the way they're going to be forever. But they have all the power. They're not going to grow up to maturity is what I'm talking about. And I know that the people who did a certain podcast and named it after that expression from the King Follett Discourse had a lot of people saying, what the hell does that mean? Why would you have a podcast called Infants on Thrones? Well, that's why. 
And it's even harder to find out that Joseph Smith said that because Joseph Fielding Smith, when he compiled the teachings of Joseph Smith in the 1930s, Joseph Fielding Smith was the church historian at the time. I think he was also an apostle by then. He was somewhat selective in how he edited what Joseph Smith said. So you do have the King Follett discourse toward the end of the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, but there's one thing at least that you're never going to find in that, and that has to do with infants on thrones. Because what happened is that by the beginning of the 20th century, I'll go back to the 20,000, 30,000 foot view. We did a podcast, Bill Real and I, about what was it? Oh, he wanted to look at something from a really general perspective. I think it had to do with, um, I can't even remember. I can't remember where I was yesterday. But the idea was he was going to take a high view of something instead of getting down in the weeds which we frequently do. And I and he wanted to call it something. And I said, hey, let's call it this. Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Who gets that? Thank you. There's someone on the wing. Something. Anyway, that's my attempt at William Shatner. Because he was in it. Yeah. And uh, it's a Twilight Zone episode. It's famous. I mean, it was one of the four, actually one of the three that they recreated for the movie, The Twilight Zone. I almost said four because there's four stories in it. But actually, there's one of them that was never... Yeah, who cares? Okay. And we won't even talk about the horrible accident that happened with the helicopter and, you know, Vic Morrow and the two kids. Okay. But he wants to do this 20,000 foot thing. And then he says, oh, it's 30,000 because apparently now planes actually fly higher at cruising altitude. So he goes with 30,000. Anyway, now where was I going with that? Can anybody help me? Oh, infants on thrones, 30,000 foot. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Where are you when I'm podcasting? That's what I want to know. That's another thing that's so humbling. Honestly, honestly, I'm sitting in my underground bunker. And by the way, that's not completely made up because it is at least partially underground. I wouldn't say the whole thing's underground, but literally part of it's underground. It's set into an embankment. So at least I'm not lying. He's doing this 30,000 foot thing and I'm trying to do it now. And what happens is it's very speculative up to the end of the 19th century. And this is where you have all the wonderful things about people talking about Jesus being married. And he's not just married, he's really married. I mean, you can't find a woman named in the New Testament that he's not married to, except maybe his mother, and I'm not even sure about that. So there's all this speculative stuff that's in the Journal of Discourses that for some reason the church with uh, its resources doesn't have bandwidth enough to have it on the official LDS church website. It's really surprising the things they don't have on the website. By the way, could somebody put their finger in that page where I'm leaving to go on this tangent? Thank you. I'll try and do it, but I won't. I'll forget the things they don't have because they could have everything basically in the world on their website if they wanted to. When it comes to general conference talks, for some reason, they've decided we don't want to go all the way back to the 19th century. We're going to stop at 1971. And that's as far back as you can go on the church website to find general conference talks. And when that happens, by the way, as a defense attorney, I read so many pages of police reports in my 32 years being an attorney. I have no idea how many, but I'm going to guess it's probably a lot. And one of the senses that I have developed just because of reading thousands of pages, you will develop certain senses, is that not only seeing what is said, but also seeing what is not said. And usually, if something is not said, there's a reason for it not being said. And a lot of times, if it's not said, it's because it's not helping the case of the person who's writing the police report. Now, sometimes there can just be, you know, accidents or mistakes, or I didn't think it was important. That's fine. But it is a second sense that gets developed. And so then the question immediately comes to my mind when I understand that the church does not have general conference earlier than 1971, The question that comes to my mind is, what is it that is in those general conference talks that makes it so you don't want to have them available on your website? I don't know the specific answer to that, 
but I'm guessing that it might have something to do with three words, Ezra Taft Benson. <laughs> because I will tell you that he was saying a lot of things in general conference that maybe the church doesn't want the world or the members to know about. One thing that's really surprising, and it surprised me when I went to look for it, is that uh, who here has ever read the lectures on faith? Have you? Sandra? Yeah? <laughs> Over here, too? I did, too. When I got back from my mission, it was a little green book. It was a Gerald Lund or somebody who put this together and had some notes in it or something. But I had to buy a special paperback to read the lectures on faith. And when I learned the history of the lectures on faith, it was quite strange because those were actually originally in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. And in fact, the lectures on faith were published before the revelations that had been received up to that point. And the lectures on faith were the doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants. That's why it's called Doctrine and Covenants, because the lectures are the doctrine. It's the systematic attempt to talk about well, faith. That's why they call the lectures on faith, right? So that's the doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants. They call it Doctrine and Covenants. And then in 1921, I think it is, and I'm looking over here to Sandra for the nod, they do a new edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. And by that point, they have a problem with the lectures on faith. And it's been a problem for a while. By the way, that's another thing. Whenever a large organization, including the church, finally gets around to correcting something, you know it's been a problem for at least 20 to 30 years before them. They're not known for turning on a dime. So what happened, of course, was everything's fine in the lectures on faith, except for lecture five. And the problem with lecture five is, of course, that it has a very different version of the Godhead than in section 130 or 31. Anyway, the one that we all learn, right? It's the true nature of God. There's three beings. I think you could probably quote it with me. The Father has a body of flesh and bones, as tangible as man's. The Son also, the Holy Ghost, is a personage of spirit, right? Otherwise, you couldn't dwell with us. But that's 1842 or 3, Ramos, Illinois. That's toward the end of Joseph Smith's life. Lectures on Faith are given in 1834 or so, School of the Prophets, published in 1835 for the first time. And in Lecture 5, it talks about the Godhead. And all of a sudden, it's very different. There are not three members in the Godhead. There are only two in 1835 in the lectures on faith. At this point in the presentation, there was unfortunately a loss of about a minute and a half of audio. But in order to understand the comment that I make when the audio picks up again, you have to visualize the fact that I'm standing in front of this group of about 200 people behind a microphone. And it's live streaming as well. So there's a small camera immediately in front of me, but down low, maybe about three feet off the ground. And John DeLynn has gone to check that camera to make sure the live stream is still recording. And in order to check it, because it's so low to the ground, he has to get down on one knee in front of me in order to check the camera to make sure the live stream is still going. That is what is happening in the room. And that is what the audience can see. And that is why I make the following comment when the audio picks up. Play the tape. Do not worship me. I'm a man like unto yourself, John Dillon. A little book of Revelation humor there. So 1835, we have this, and I'm going to synopsize this again. There's only two beings in the Godhead. The Son has a body of flesh and bone. The Father is a personage of spirit. There's no Holy Ghost as a separate personage. Seven years later, eight years later, now it's changed. And that becomes part of the Doctrine and Covenants. And that's the one that we all understand, is that the Father has a body of flesh and bones. The Son also, it's, the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. And that creates a conflict. And so what happens is in 1921, without a vote from the membership, by the way, the leaders of the church decide 
that they are going to remove the entire lectures on faith from the Doctrine and Covenants. And that's what they do. And so since that time, the lectures on faith have not been in the Doctrine and Covenants, but we still call it the Doctrine and Covenants. Really, we should just be calling it the Covenants because the Doctrine is gone. Now, I told you that to tell you this. That's pretty significant. That's an important part of church history. And in spite of the fact that you almost can't go to any general conference and hear everybody speak and not hear somebody quote or reference from the lectures on faith, not lecture five, oh no, but other things that are very familiar, a faith that does not require of its members a sacrifice of all things is not sufficient to bring them salvation. Who hears her that? That's from the lectures on faith. There's a couple of other things that are very familiar to Latter-day Saints that are from the lectures on faith, but not lecture five. So what I'm leading to is this. If you go to the church website and try and find the lectures on faith, you're going to be looking for a long time because it's not there. And I don't think it's because they don't have the ability to have it there if they wanted. So those are gone. But what happens then, going back, anybody remember where I put my finger? Yes? Thank you so much. Thank you. So what happens is at the beginning of the 20th century, we start getting a systematized theology. And what that means is that the church starts to sanction basically James Talmadge because he gives some lectures. And the church says, hey, we like those. Why don't you write those up for us and we'll publish it for you. And this is what becomes the very famous books by James Talmadge titled Jesus the Christ and the Articles of Faith and all the other books that serve as the foundation, with a few changes still, but serves basically as the foundation for the Mormonism that we learn today and that the church teaches today. And that happens in the early part of the 20th century. But these things don't happen overnight. When you're talking about changes, you don't come to this point, boom, there's a change. And now that change stays in place forever. So even in the 1930s, we still have apostles who are arguing with each other, I'm sure very respectfully, and with the Spirit. But there are a number of things that are very significant that are going on in society in the 20s and 30s. Evolution, the Scopes trial, the age of the earth. And we have different apostles who have different opinions and strongly held opinions on the subject. And Joseph Fielding Smith was generally the one who had the fundamentalist, more literal, scriptural interpretation of these things, i.e. 6,000 years old and Adam and Eve were real. And there's no such thing as freaking evolution. And it's a doctrine of the devil. And then you have other people, because they're actually scientists who were apostles. I mean, we, we have them today. But um, Widso was one. Talmadge was another. And B.H. Uh, Roberts, he wasn't in the apostles, but he was kind of significant. So they have these ideas that are more scientifically oriented, and they're trying to find ways to accommodate the scientific advances into Mormon theology, which means the earth is getting older. That's the main thing. The earth is getting older. And maybe God uses evolution as part of creation. And we shouldn't rule that out of the picture because God can do it the way he wants. He is God, right? So what we need to do is learn how God is doing it and not impose how we think he did it on God. So there's a number of public debates about this issue. Wouldn't it be an exciting time to be a Mormon? Listening to the apostles express different opinions about things and sort of giving you the, the permission because of that to come to your own opinion about it and not be marginalized in the church because you've got apostles that are, are backing you. Well, what ends up happening, by the way, do you know who won that debate ultimately over time? It was Joseph Fielding Smith. Do you know how he won it? He outlived them. He outlived them. And he, it is music to my ears to have me saying things and hear Sandra Tanner going, yep, yep. He outlived them. That's how you win in the Mormon church. You just outlive your opponent. And if you have any question about that, just ask yourself, how does President Nelson become the prophet of the church? Because he outlived all the competition. So these things are still going on. But finally, 
And when I say going on, there's systematization and correlation of what is the church teaching on different subjects. And so to do that, what they have to do is they have to say, okay, we're going to take what Joseph Smith said about kids here and the resurrection. And this part, we're not going to talk about anymore. So we have to pick and choose when we're dealing with a person like Joseph Smith, what it is we're going to teach and what it is we're going to ignore. Because you can't incorporate it all and have it all be one eternal round, true circumscribed into one great whole. That's not going to work. We have to give God a little help here. So what happens then is about 1960 or so, the correlation, the priesthood correlation committee, was it the super priesthood correlation committee, or is that just sort of something someone else called it, was created. And the idea behind this was to really systematize things and to make sure that the church is teaching only one thing to the members. Gone are the days when we're going to have different opinions about things. And Harold B. Lee was the person who was in charge of this correlation committee. I'm just going off memory by now. Keep me honest. And I think that originally the idea was, well, we've got all these different magazines in the church. We've got magazine for Relief Society. We've got magazine for the primary. We've got magazine for everybody. Let's cut out some of those magazines. We don't need to have all those magazines. Let's bring them together. Harold B. Lee, you're in charge. Well, Harold B. Lee was a kind of guy who not only does what he's told to do, but he will go further and he will enlarge his power under the auspices of doing what it was he was told to do. So what he does is he creates this correlation committee, which now is going to systematize everything and make sure that everybody in the church is taught the correct thing. And I think he came up with like 70, it might've been 72 subjects in Mormonism, whether it's apostasy or restoration or tithing or restoration or tithing. <laughs> oh, tithing. We hear about this so often. I wonder why. But the idea was that every member of the church would hear about each one of these subjects at least three times when they were growing up in the church so that it would be cemented upon their mind the correct doctrine. That was the idea. Something else funny that happened is that President David O. McKay, who gave him the assignment in the first place and was the president of the church for like 20 years from the, the 50s and the 60s, the, those two decades, basically. I read the book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. How many people have read that? So there's a few people. Uh, he was very much loved by the people. And I think he was a wonderful character. But what really came across to me is that he was a very weak leader. He wasn't strong in terms of keeping people in line, which is why Bruce R. McConkie got away with the whole Mormon doctrine thing which is his own fiasco. I'm bringing that up to say that I think he was not very strong with Harold B. Lee. So Harold B. Lee was given the license by the weakness, nature abhors a vacuum, to do a lot more with this priesthood correlation committee. And I think it was David O. McKay who said to him at one point, well, if we have a priesthood correlation committee that is designed to decide and determine what the correct doctrine is of the church, what are the apostles for? And I don't know that he ever got a satisfactory answer to that, but that's part of being weak. And it's part of being the fact that he lived until he was like, I don't know, 300. That's part of the weakness. We have a system that promotes people generally to be the president and the leader of the church at the weakest time of their lives. And then we have all these other people who are younger, who are jockeying for position to do what it is that they want to do. And that happens over and over again. So I got to ask you this question now. How many people have watched General Conference at any time or any part of General Conference ever? How many people are aware that when the people who are giving the speeches, the talks, we call them talks in church, we're talking the talk. They may not walk the walk, but they sure talk the talk. That those are run through the correlation committee, right? Correlation committee has to vet to make sure that they're correct. Has anybody here ever wondered, who the hell are these guys? 
And why do apostles' talks have to be vetted? And have we not created a form of shadow government in the LDS Church, who are by and large nameless and faceless, who are actually over the apostles? That was the concern that David O. McKay had, but he was, I think, too weak and feeble to do anything about it. But that's what's happened. It's really an interesting situation that we have. And, you know, sometimes they do a pretty good job, and sometimes they are so asleep at the switch. Okay, another tangent. I haven't gotten to this part of the podcast. On RFM, I've done the morning session, Saturday morning session review. There is this massive conflict and contradiction in general conference. And I don't know that I've heard anybody mention it. Maybe somebody has, and I'm just not aware of it. But it's between Elder Holland in the Saturday afternoon session and Elder Renland in the Saturday evening session, what we like to call the women's session. And you know it's the women's session because we've got a man speaking. And he's speaking about women, and he's not only speaking about women, he's speaking about the woman or the women, Heavenly Mother, right? And he's there to tell all the other women how they need to view their mother in heaven. Anything wrong with that picture? Apparently, Elder Renlund doesn't see anything wrong with that picture. But mainly, he's there to say, we don't know shit about Heavenly Mother. (laughs) And if he would just come out and say that, I would have some respect for him. (laughs) Because he takes 20 minutes to say that. Of course, (laughs) glass houses. So anyway, uh, but really, he's, have you ever noticed that we've got prophet seers and revelators who make a regular practice of telling us we don't know shit? And the idea is, I, I thought the idea in the job description and what I was taught by the missionaries and what I taught for two years to people in Japan with the missionary discussions is that we have prophet seers and revelators on the earth today, and it's so wonderful because they can go to God if there's a question and ask God, and God will give them the answer, and then they'll give it to the people, us. And we are the beneficiaries of the prophets and seers and revelators. And that's how it works. Am I the only one who ever heard that? I'm going to bet you it's still taught today. And we've got that on one side, which is the theory of the church. And the theory of the church is wonderful. This church has a theory that is great. And I really, really like it. And I joined the church because of it. And I gave up two years of my life in Japan because of it. And I basically gave up my freaking life because of it. There's still a little bit left here at the end. I'm trying to make the best of things. But when it comes down to it, and then you start seeing what the reality is, the reality is well, we've got all these questions, but we don't know the answer, and we're not going to know the answer. And if we don't know the answer, you sure as hell don't know the answer. So just don't pray to Heavenly Mother. Leave her alone. She'll come home, wagging her tail behind her. No, you can't pray to Heavenly Mother. And why is that? Why can't you pray to Heavenly Mother? Because we as prophets, I'm sorry, it does. And if it takes away from Heavenly Father, then it takes away from the leaders of the church who seem to be pretty much guys. Um, yeah, they're, they're guys. But honestly, it's ridiculous. This is part of the problem is thinking. <laughs> and I'm not talking about really deep thinking. I'm talking about just scratching the surface thinking. We've got prophet seers and revelators who will tell us, Gordon B. Hinckley did this, I think back in the 90s when there was a problem with some people saying, hey, let's pray to Heavenly Mother. going, no, 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 don't pray to her. And I think Elder Renland uh, sort of echoed that same sentiment in the last general conference in the women's session. The reason that prophets, seers, and revelators today know that we should not be praying to Heavenly Mother is because Jesus in the New Testament said, Our Father who art in heaven, and that's the way you should pray. Talk about a religion that preaches one thing, but then they're tied hand and foot 
to what is said in the scriptures from 2,000 years ago. Of course, they're usually tied to it when that's what they want to be tied to. You know what I mean? There's a saying that Jesus has in the New Testament about the scripture cannot be broken. What is it? Oh, he's quoting from Psalms about sons of God, right? Oh, I can't remember. If you are gods, even the sons of God, anyway, then why are you blaming me? Because I'm, I say I'm the son of God, right? Okay, something like that. But he prefaces it by saying, it says this in, the, in Psalms, and the scripture cannot be broken. And therefore, if people, they're actually judges, but anyway, he's taking a little literary license, I think here. If they're called gods, if people are called gods, why are you blaming me for saying I'm the son of God? But it's the phrase, the scripture cannot be broken that I'm trying to focus on here. Because the reality is, and this came to me like 15 years ago, that really the only scripture that cannot be broken is the one that you agree with. Every other scripture can be broken and sliced and diced, and it's like made, it's from, by Ronco. Any other scripture can be twisted and turned inside out so it doesn't conflict what you agree with. It's only the scriptures that you agree with that cannot be broken. So now having come back to Heavenly Mother and the apostles who are in touch with God, but apparently God's not talking, maybe they should talk to Heavenly Mother. It couldn't be any worse. The contradiction. Oh my gosh, I am so far from this. It's amazing. I trust that the Holy Ghost is leading me to tell you what you need to hear tonight. And there is at least one person present tonight who needs to hear this message. <laughs> and you know who you are. Have you ever heard that in church? How many people have ever heard that in church? Who said you said it? Yes. Well, I have two now. But have you ever thought, you know, that's so inspiring, but then you think about it, not deep, just, you know, that deep. How would anybody know if that's true? In order to know if that's true, you would actually have to stand outside the meeting hall as everybody's funneling out and ask each of them individually, one by one, was that for you? <laughs> and you would have to ask everybody who was there and get a no answer before you knew that that was just a pile of crap. So these are the kinds of things that are said that are very difficult to falsify. And those are the best kinds of things to say in a spiritual context, right? You can't falsify them. Back to the contradiction. Does anybody even care about this contradiction at this point? Okay, so what, what Elder Rinland said got a lot of play and a lot of publicity because it was uh, more controversial than what Elder Holland said. Believe it or not, this is like a first in general conference. I think Elder Holland's getting tired of taking the heat and says, hey, Elder Rinland, why don't you take this one? So Elder Rillen says, I got it. I'll take a bullet for you. So he gets up there, and what he says is, we don't know anything about Heavenly Mother, but it doesn't mean that we're not apostles because it would be arrogant for us to be asking God about this. Now, he says demanding, right? But it's asking. It would be arrogant of us to ask God for further light and knowledge. <laughs> that just came to me. Yeah, it would be arrogant of us to ask for further light and knowledge from God especially when it's a subject that we don't want to know anything more about. But that's what he said. Everybody has heard that, right? Okay, because that got all the play. But Elder Holland, less than four hours before Elder Rinland says this, so Elder Holland speaking in the Saturday afternoon session and Elder Rinland is in the Saturday evening session. Elder Holland is talking about social issues. Big surprise. He's talking about social issues and how the apostles and his brethren are trying as hard as they can to get revelation from God, to answer these thorny issues about gays in the church, LGBTQ issues. Those seems to be a hot button topic now that they're getting a lot of heat for. And now he's trying to explain what they're trying to do to get the answers from God. 
And I kid you not, he says the apostles, including himself, the prophets and apostles are giving their lives. They are giving their lives, petitioning God for revelation on these subjects. And what he goes on to say is, yeah, well, God is not answering the phone. And so that's when he says, if you have to at this, you know, this banquet that we give you every general conference, if you have to eat a little broccoli, remember, then that's okay. That's okay. He's liking the broccoli to, you know, the church's position on certain social issues. But the main point I'm making is who is trying to correlate these? Because what we have now is Elder Holland saying that all the apostles, presumably including Elder Renland, are giving their lives. I think that means spending a lot of time petitioning God for revelation on these issues. And then less than four hours later, Elder Renlund gets up and says, it would be arrogant of us to even ask God for revelation about Heavenly Mother. And I saw that and I went, I think someone was asleep at the switch in the correlation committee on that one. I mean, this isn't even like an apostle says it and a 70 says it who wouldn't be part of the apostles. These are both apostles. We'll have to figure that one out in the next life. God will give us the answer there. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm at least halfway down the page now. So what happens then is that the correlation committee does its work. And I was not really aware of the correlation committee. I get baptized in 1978, but I can read a few books. I went to a pretty good school. I've read a couple of books. And I am not a dodo. They don't think I am. So I can read about it, and I find out that this correlation committee was heralded as being basically, it's like the sign of the time. And once we get this through and done and in place, then Jesus can come again. Because that's the thing that's the most important to Jesus, is that we all teach the same thing through the correlation committee. In fact, there are actually references that you can find, I don't know if they're on the church website, of conference talks where it was said that the correlation committee is what the city of Enoch had. It's true. You know it. And that's why the city of Enoch got raised to heaven, because they had the correlation committee. And so it was only a matter of time once we had the correlation committee now that we would be raised to heaven, except that doesn't happen anymore. Now heaven comes down to earth. Jesus is going to come again. And I guess we're still waiting for that. But I get baptized in 1978, and I'm not in the heart of Utah. And Mormonism seems so exciting to me. It seems so expansive and I thought it was a sun rising in the horizon because that's what it looked like to me. And I didn't realize that in history in 1978, it wasn't the sun rising in the sky. It was the sun going down. And it wasn't long after that that correlation really took hold with its teeth. And they would talk about that. They would say it takes a while for the water to get to the end of the rope. That was a frequent expression. We have to get this correlation out there everywhere. And they have. And now it's all locked in place to where there is one religion that is taught, and it is the orthodoxy that we have in the church. And in order to show your righteousness, you have to have the orthodox opinion. And if you don't have the orthodox opinion, then that is a sign that you are not righteous and you need to repent. Do you think that's a fair thing to say? I think by and large, it's fair. There's obviously going to be exceptions. It's a big church with a lot of people, but by and large, that's the way it runs. Now, how long did I say it takes before something happens in the church until a change is made? 20 to 30 years. So correlation starts at the beginning of the 60s. About 30 years later is 1990. 
There's a lot of reasons that they changed the, um, the temple endowment. And it's a surprise to a lot of people that it had less to do with revelation than it did with public opinion polls among the members of the church. Because if you go by revelation, sometimes it can be a bad thing. And so am I bound by that anymore? I don't know. That's one of those things I don't answer. <laughs> yeah, it depends on what crowd. Absolutely. But we take out the minister. And one of the lines that he said, come back to where I started. Yes. Thank you very much. One of the lines that he had, which you may or may not recall, is he comes to preach to Adam and Eve. And Lucifer is standing behind him because he's Lucifer's hireling. And he comes to preach to them. And what does everybody in the endowment, who do they represent? Adam and Eve. So he's there to preach to the congregation. A fine congregation we have here this morning. He said something like that, didn't he? I preach the orthodox religion. How many remember him saying that? I preach the orthodox religion. And he had said that in temple endowments for probably well over 100 years by 1990. But by 1990, he has taken out, and that line, and I believe that sentiment as well, is removed from the endowment. And it strikes me, it actually struck a friend of mine who told me, and I'm stealing it and claiming it as mine. It strikes me that it's a significant thing when a church who has now transferred itself, evolved into being an orthodox religion, now takes a character who is spouting Satan's lines about, I teach the orthodox religion, and saying, okay, he needs to go. And we need to remove that line. That is the beauty of it. <laughs> and if you got your endowment after 1990, I'm sorry. I can't explain it to you. But uh, let me think. I think I wrote something down. It concluded a little bit better. The church that owns and runs the temple in which this play, the endowment is a play. It's not a very good play. But it is a play. The church that owns and runs the temples in which this play is performed has become the new orthodoxy. And so preaching the orthodox religion was a bad thing up until 1990, when now the church has its own orthodoxy and the priest needs to go. Because it's like that old expression when you're pointing one finger at somebody, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. The church finally figured out that they don't want to be advocating the new correlated orthodoxy and have members go to the temple and have somebody who's a Protestant minister who is under the rule of Satan claiming that he's the one who teaches the Orthodox religion. Okay, one other thing I wanna bring up here, and this is a great, great quote. It's from William James. Anybody ever read any William James? We got one hand. We got another hand over here. Brilliant guy. And he wrote, he did a series of lectures, two series, but we don't have to get into that. I think it was over in Scotland, anyway. And it was about religion from a philosophical point of view. And they ended up being collected and published in a book called Varieties of Religious Experience. And I read this because, once again, I get through Shakespeare and I say, well, let me keep going. And I want to try and read things that are classics and see what I can learn because I've only got so much time left on this earth. And maybe I should read some of these books before I die that I managed to avoid reading in high school when I was supposed to be reading them. Podcast, which he does live on Sunday evenings, which he does live on Sunday evenings. 
and then forgetting a book. And in the middle of it, he had to leave the camera and go walking off somewhere to try and find his book. I actually called him live on that show and he picked it up. His phone was on. So I'm watching him pick up the phone that I'm calling him. I'm in Washington. He's in Idaho. And I said, okay, Carrie, you're doing a great job tonight. But if you leave that camera one more time, I am personally going to come to Idaho and kill you. All right. So varieties of religious experience. I think I got it here. Now, this is just a little bit long. I'm going to conclude with this because this is one of those experiences that I have when I'm reading literature. And all of a sudden, this author who has given this lecture a hundred years before I'm reading it is speaking directly to me in my experience as a Latter-day Saint. And not only is he confirming what I am discovering, he's opening wider the doors to new understanding. And this is what he says. Because what happened with the LDS church in this trajectory that I've described is not phenomenal. It's not unusual. It's what always happens. I had no idea. But then he's talking about it, and in such wonderful language. Here we go. A survey of history. Let me make sure this is the right thing. Yeah, okay. I hate to get to the end of the page and find out I'm reading the wrong thing. A survey of history shows us that, as a rule, religious geniuses like Joseph Smith, religious geniuses attract disciples and produce groups of sympathizers, people who kind of agree with them. When these groups get strong enough to organize themselves, they become ecclesiastical institutions with corporate ambitions of their own. He's not talking about Mormonism. Specifically, he's talking about religion in general. It just sounds a lot like Mormonism. So initially, you've got this religious genius out here, this voice in the wilderness, right? If he's successful or she is successful, there are women. To attract some disciples, then they can start growing. The vast majority of these people don't even get off the ground. And we never hear about them because they don't make history. When these groups get strong enough to organize themselves, they become ecclesiastical institutions with corporate ambitions of their own. The spirit of politics and the lust of dogmatic rule are then apt to enter and to contaminate the originally innocent thing. Is he talking to me? I remember reading this. This is 10 or 15 years ago. I'm reading this and I'm going, my Gosh, he is talking to me and he's talking about my religion. And then he goes on to say this, a genuine firsthand religious experience like this is bound to be a heterodoxy to its witnesses. By the way, heterodoxy is the $5 word for heresy. There's orthodoxy and heterodoxy. So orthodoxy, we usually say heresy, but he says heterodoxy. So a genuine firsthand religious experience like this is bound to be a heterodoxy or a heresy to its witnesses. The prophet, he uses that word, the prophet appearing as a mere lonely madman. If his doctrine proved contagious enough to spread to any others, it becomes a definite and labeled heresy. Does that sound like Mormonism's early days and how other people viewed it? But if it then still prove contagious enough to triumph over persecution... It becomes itself an orthodoxy. And when a religion has become an orthodoxy, its day of inwardness is over. The spring is dry. The faithful 
live at second hand exclusively and stone the prophets in their turn. The new church, in spite of whatever human goodness it may foster, can be henceforth counted on as a staunch ally in every attempt to stifle the spontaneous religious spirit and to stop all later bubblings of the fountain from which in purer days it drew its own supply of inspiration. If you're like shocked by this, you're experiencing the same feeling I was when I read this. And then finally, these are just three excerpts that I am impressed enough by to take the time to write it down by hand. Finally, the baseness so commonly charged to religion's account are thus almost all of them not chargeable to religion proper, but rather to religion's wicked practical partner, the spirit of corporate dominion. So what he's saying is, you know, all the things that religion gets charged with that are base is really not religion's fault, but it's the fault of religion's spirit brother, right? The spirit of corporate dominion. And the bigotries, I'm reading this again now and just being overwhelmed by it again. And the bigotries are most of them in their turn chargeable to religion's wicked intellectual partner, the spirit of dogmatic dominion. The passion for laying down the law in the form of an absolutely closed-in theoretic system. And so here we have this brilliant individual from 100 years ago telling us exactly what happens with religions and why it is that Mormonism has the bigotries that it has, and not that we should be surprised at it, because this is the way things always go, regardless of what religion it is. So what I want to close with is a separate quote from Walden, by Thoreau, of course, Henry David Thoreau. How many people have heard a leader in church say that only true happiness can be found in the church and that if you leave the church, you will not be truly happy? In fact, if you do that half gainer off the side of the boat, there's sharks there waiting for a snack. But in its nicest form, you will not be happy outside the church. You must be in the church to have true happiness. I just wanted to tell you what I read from Thoreau, which shocked me when I read it 10 plus years ago, and I'll close with this, because Thoreau talks about that there's only one kind of person, he says, being in the world who's truly happy. And strangely, he doesn't say they're all in the Mormon church. No, this is just one line. There are none happy in the world but beings who enjoy freely a vast horizon. And what I take from that is that Thoreau, who apparently was no slouch when it came to thinking, came to the opposite conclusion of what the LDS church teaches. They say the only place to be happy is where you're constricted and told what to think. And he says, no, the only place that you can be truly happy is in a situation where you enjoy freely a vast horizon. Thank you very much. I already got the applause, so you don't have to applaud again. But if you want to... For the third time. Uh, when I found out that RFM was coming, I uh, 
you know, I remember the debate, which I'm, uh, which he mentions in my interview with him. Uh, I just remembered that that you know we did a th whole Thrive event with like 1,500 people signing up, and people were way more excited to go to his debate with uh, Kwaku and Cardin than they were to come to Thrive. And Thrive was a great event, so I just knew that there was going to be a big demand uh, for people to meet him. So. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do is give you a chance to meet RFM because he's a great human. The other thing, though, is sometimes, you know, I, I podcasted in, uh, in Logan for many, many years and didn't have a lot of people to talk to, didn't have a lot of friends, and it was really lonely. And I, I can tell you without even talking to RFM that uh, it gets lonely for him sometimes. And so uh, sometimes it's hard to really get how much people can appreciate the work you do. And uh, so I wanted to um, give him a chance to know how much love and appreciation we have for him. And having you all, 200 of you, probably 220, 230, all sign up to uh, pay to um, meet him is just a real dream come true. So I wanna personally, Jen and I, and Gerardo and the Open Source Foundation want to thank all of you for showing up for RFM. It means a lot to us. But you're not only showing up physically, what, what we told RFM is minus some administrative costs, we wanted uh, to be able to um, make this worth his time and his while financially. Uh, RFM isn't to the point yet where he can podcast full time. But can you imagine the trembling and the fear that would come to Salt Lake City if RFM was able to spend his full 40, 50, 60 hours a week doing what he does. Would you like that? So, so would I. So the only real thing standing behind that now is, is us stepping up to help. So we have a check for $2,000 that comes from all of you. And we're gonna give that to RFM today. That's a down payment. Thank you. That's a down payment on your promise to move here. There was no promise that was given. There was a tentative suggestion that I might be able to. Yeah, so I hope to. Yeah, so that's that's the one thing I also want to say. RFM is considering moving to Salt Lake City. And so one thing that we would be happy to do with the Open Stories Foundation is make our studio available for free so that RFM could, if you wanted to, broadcast. <laughs> Why are you guys laughing? Yeah, and, and by the way, we're in full support of Bill Real, so this is in no way trying to usurp the good relationship Bill and RFM have. But we will do whatever we can to help RFM be successful if he does decide to make that jump. So. Thank you. Yeah, you guys wanted to make the jump? Jump. Thank you so much. By the way, this was all uh, close. This was all a closely held secret until I think yesterday when I mentioned the possibility of John. And so now it's no longer a secret. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you, I appreciate you. You're, you're a wonderful guy. What? What's that? Yeah, don't tell anyone. Yeah. So here's the lesson from tonight. If you want something to be kept a secret. <laughs> okay, so, um, so anyway, RFM, thank you so much. Thanks for all you do. We all want you to come here and to be able to do this full time. So I would, Jen and I and Gerardo and all of us will all do our part to make it happen. True? Yes. True. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Gillette. I appreciate you very much. Okay, we have time for a few questions. 
RFM, uh, RFM needs to leave at 9. What time is it? It is 8.35. Jen, do you have a... Minutes. And you know what I would like to do? I would like to make it... I know it's, it's going to be a little bit noisy, but if you want to start getting some cookies before they're all gone, now would be a good time to head over there. Is that okay? Jen, do you want to just make Yeah. Just take cookies and water with you. I don't want to take home 200 cookies with me. So make sure you get them. Yeah. I have a peanut butter and chocolate one. It's amazing. Sugar so. Fix made them for you guys, and they're amazing. And you so. paid for them, so you may as well take them. <laughs> There's water there. So you can stand up now and grab some water and some cookies. Uh, we'll do 10, 15 minutes of questions. And then those of you who want selfies with RFM can, uh, can get it before you have to go, before he has to go. Who's got a question? All right. Right here. Thank you. Good idea. Um, yeah. That is a really good question and one that I wish you had not asked. Next question. No, I'm going to answer it, okay? Oh, the question was, if I could just truncate the part about Bill Real, and I brought up Bruce, my best friend in high school, he, who introduced me to the church and baptized me into the church, and what is our, how does he feel about me right now? We don't talk about it. We don't talk frequently. He lives in New York. He'll come out on business. He's retired now. Some people get to do that. Some people who haven't been divorced twice, usually, but... He <laughs> anyway, what he does is uh, he makes a point of not talking about it. He knows something about me. He knows something's up. I don't know how much, but I do know that when I used to blog at Rational Face, which were some controversial blogs, I did make a practice of sending them to him and some other people who were friends. So he knows that something's rotten in the state of Denmark. But like a good Mormon, he doesn't want to find out what it is that's making that stink. So uh, most recently, he was out, and I was uh, having uh, it was lunch with him. And this was at the time when all we knew about the church was that they had $36 million invested in the stock market. That was the big news then, remember? And everyone's going, what the heck? We didn't know they had $150 billion in a, a bank account or an investment account. That would be found out later. And even 36 million seemed kind of high. Was it billion or million at the time? Do you remember? I can't remember. It's a lot of money. And I brought it up to him because it just struck me that a church that claims to be run by Jesus's apostles maybe should be using their money to help people out and not hoarding it. And it only became worse when we found out how much more there really was and how desperately they had tried to keep the members from finding out. Because as one of the managers of the account said in a two-candid moment, we're concerned that if members find out how much we have, that maybe they won't think they need to pay tithing anymore. That's a shocker. Really, you think? And the amazing thing is, is that because people found, well, he was right, wasn't he? A lot of people said, I'm not paying tithing anymore. Can I tell you something that's very personal? Okay, and I don't bring this up in the podcast, and I don't think I have. And the reason why is because I don't want to be seen as whining any more than I already do. But I am doing okay. I am not out on the street begging for money. I'm not sleeping under a bridge, at least yet. So that's the part of me that doesn't want to say this. But when the reality came home to me after finding out how much money the church had, I have lived with the reality in my life that I am pretty much basically never going to be able to retire. I have no real estate. 
you know, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but Radio Free Mormon hath nowhere to lay his head. I got an apartment. It's cool. So it occurred to me, I've lived with this idea that I'm not going to be able to retire because I don't have enough to retire. And then it occurred to me that if I had taken the money that I had paid faithfully to the LDS church for the entire course of my career, and I'm not saying I would have done it, but if I had taken that money and put it into an investment account, I would have been able to retire seven years ago. I would be able to retire already. And then it struck me, in order for me, I'm trying to think if I'm remembering how this occurred to me. Basically, I have made it so that I cannot retire. I cannot be, is it independently wealthy? Is that the correct term for when you can live off the interest from what you have? Thank you. That's really what it is. Independently wealthy is much more than that, isn't it? Financially independent, retiring. You could retire. In order for me to give that up, the church has made it so that I can't, so that the church can be financially independent. And when I thought that, it really struck me that this is really not good, that I have made it so that the church can be financially independent. And in order to do so, I've made it so that I can't be. And then it occurs to me that really, and I don't want to be too hard on the church. I try and be as fair as I possibly can. It is charitable. I don't think there's any evil intent going on there. It's just sort of the way things happen. But I, I'm very disposable to the church. And frankly, we all are. We are all completely disposable to the church. And what they end up doing is using us up. And if we don't toe their line, spitting us out. And this came to me a couple of years ago in a, it's one of those revelatory moments. And I was thinking about what Jesus said in the New Testament about the Sabbath. And what he said was, you can help me out with this. He raises the hypothetical question. Is the Sabbath made for man or is man made for the Sabbath? And he's doing it in response to the Pharisees. I think Jesus set these things up. And he and his apostles are going through the wheat fields on the Sabbath and they're, they're taking the wheat off the, and eating, right? And they're doing it to survive, but they're also breaking the Sabbath. And the Pharisees call him on it. And his response is, well, is the Sabbath made for man or is man made for the Sabbath? With the idea that the Sabbath is supposed to be there for the benefit of man. Man is not supposed to be there to be a slave to the Sabbath. It's supposed to be a positive thing. And yet you've turned it and made it something negative. You've, made, you've taken freedom and made it into chains under the idea of righteousness. And for I don't know why I was thinking of this, but who knows where revelation comes. But it occurred to me that the same question could be asked in a different way. Is the church made for the Mormon or is the Mormon made for the church? And when it came into my mind that way, the answer seemed as obvious to that question as it was when Jesus asked the question about the Sabbath, because the church is not made for the Mormon. The Mormons are made for the church. And you will be used by the church, completely used by the church, until such time as you are no longer of use to the church. And then you're gone. I remember back in 2005, I think it was, they were having some kind of a meeting. Gordon B. Hinckley was the president, I believe. And I think it was a solemn assembly associated with the dedication of the new, was it 2002? It was probably 2002, whatever it was. The Nauvoo Temple was completed and they're having a solemn assembly. And this is a big deal because, I mean, I've never been to a solemn assembly before, and I didn't go to this, but it was broadcast. And strangely enough, the solemn assembly looked a lot like general conference. But I remember he had called, there were two elderly gentlemen who were up there. They're, they're in some position in the church, and they had just been released, and now they're being called to something else. It's not a, an apostleship. It's some kind of, you know, 
thing that the church needed them to do. And I remember Gordon B. Hinckley saying this, and it was a, a fun line, and everybody chuckled, and I chuckled too. He said, these two gentlemen, because they've given their life in service for the church, but they're not done yet. We have worn them out on one side, and now we're going to turn them over and wear them out on the other side. And everybody chuckled because, yeah, that's, that's, that's clever. Except now I'm looking at it and saying, you know, that really is what the church does. And if anybody has any doubt about this, if you can retire, by the way, <laughs> if you can retire, and if you're still married, so I disqualify on at least those two counts, as well as others, you are really encouraged to go serve a mission. Who? You are? What the hell are you doing here? <laughs> Returning and reporting, I hope. But really, I mean, my goodness, at an age when most people are retiring, enjoying the fruits of their hard-earned labors for their entire life, which usually includes children and grandchildren, no, the time is not for your grandchildren. You need to go and serve a mission for the Lord. And not just one, but basically as many as you can do. And so this is just one of the ways that when I'm a faithful Mormon, I look at that and think that's what I, I mean, I wanted to do that. When I was married to my first wife, I had visions, oh, I'll be a mission president. And if not, I'll serve a mission with my wife. But now when you start looking at it from a distance, I go, wow, you really do get used up by the church. They really do wear you out on one side and then turn you over and wear you out on the other. And I am living proof that if you step out of line, they have no trouble getting rid of you. I shouldn't say that because I'm not technically excommunicated yet. But anyway, that's, that's what I think. And the other thing about the church, oh, you're going to raise your hand. You mean there's more than one question? I'm sorry. <laughs> was I raving? Yes, I was. How many do you want a picture with our family? Oh, my gosh. Really? Maybe we should just go to that. Is that okay? Can we go to pictures with me? Okay, before we do that, let me make one final round. Okay. Yes. Can we give our family a final round of applause? Thank you. We love you, our <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for, for all of you who support Mormon Stories Podcast and the Open Stories Foundation. You also helped make this night possible. Thanks for your support. Stay in touch. Have a good night, everybody. Come get your photo with RFM. Take care. Bye.